This is episode 115 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Firefight and What Will the Government Do Before, During, and After SHTF? And lastly, How Do Different Generations View Preparedness? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, uh, before we get started, I just want to let you know, uh, I received an email from Brian. It's always encouraging uh, when I get an email from from a listener telling me that they appreciate uh, the podcast and to keep up the good work. He and his wife listen uh, to the podcast, so thanks Brian and Brian's wife. He also mentioned that... uh, they purchase through the Amazon link, and so uh, that's, a, that's a little blessing for us. It doesn't cost you anything, but if you are planning on purchasing something through Amazon, and you go through one of our links, like on our website, uh, on the Prepper Website podcast, or if, if you do it from Prepper Website, um, and uh, you purchase something, you go through that link to get to Amazon, you purchase something, it doesn't cost you anything else extra, but we do get a little percentage, and so that, that does help me in uh, kind of running... Uh, prepper website and then dealing with the cost and so uh, I, I do really appreciate that uh, when people do that so thanks so much Brian for uh, for doing that and uh, those of you that are out there if you if you're finding value in it you know I, I do appreciate any feedback on the on the podcast and then also do really appreciate all the reviews that we get on iTunes and stuff like that 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 really really helps out so thanks so much for that so let's go ahead and get started on um, on our articles. The first one comes to us from survivalblog.com, and the title of the article is Firefight, and something that uh, I think we really should consider, uh, something that we probably don't consider enough in preparedness. So let's go ahead and get started. Are you ready for a firefight? One of the most discussed topics in the prepper sphere is how to start fires. There are tons of articles, blogs, books, and products geared towards helping you start fires in wilderness or Teotihuacan scenarios. However, there's one aspect of fires that tends to be overlooked, how to put them out when you don't want them. Every year in the U.S., fires cause thousands of deaths, tens of thousands of injuries, and billions of dollars in damage. And that's with fully functional fire departments in almost every city, town, and county. Imagine how, many, how much worse the situation will be once fire departments are no longer able to respond and careless angry mobs are running around starting fires to keep warm, cook food, or just enjoy the pretty flames. Most of you reading this are probably at least partially prepared for the loss of health care, law enforcement, water, and food services. But how prepared are you to protect your family, supplies, and property from fires? As the saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So let's look at some simple steps that can be taken to prevent fires from impacting you, or at least minimize their impact. In a post-Tiotwaki world, we'll probably be using fire a lot more. We'll use it for everything from cooking to heating to providing light. The first step to containing your fire is to control the fuel they have available, and that means making sure they only burn what you want them to burn. Keep your property clean and clear, both inside and out. Get rid of flammable trash, brush piles, oil-soaked rags, and anything else that can easily catch fire. If you're starting a fire for any purpose, make sure there's nothing close by that can catch a spark or ember and start burning. Keep the area around your house clear of trees, bushes, and brush out to at least 100 feet. 
This also gives you clear shooting lanes. Also, regularly trim back grass and weeds, get a scythe or a push lawnmower, and probably, most importantly, make sure everyone is regularly aware of and trained on good fire handling practices. This includes children who seem to find fire fascinating. If you're building a house or other structure, look at using materials like concrete or stone, metal structural members, fire-rated drywall, and fire-resistant paint like FireGuard E84. You should also understand that there's no way to guarantee that there will never be a fire. So disperse your assets so that one fire can't wipe everything out. Put up multiple sheds, outbuildings, caches, root cellars, etc. around your property and disperse enough supplies into each to ensure you can restart your life if one of them burns down. Once you've accepted that there's a good chance of a fire happening despite your best efforts, how do you handle it? One of the leading causes of death in fire is smoke inhalation. Usually, smoke inhalation could have been avoided if the residents had enough warning and or good escape capabilities. Start with the warning. Take a look at your smoke detectors. They're most likely either hardwired into your electrical system, which probably won't be working post-Tiatwaki, or they use 9-volt batteries, which will probably be hard to find. Consider picking up a stash of detectors that operate on easily recharged AA batteries like the First Alert SA320. Pick up some for all of the buildings on your property as well as some spares since they have a limited functioning lifetime. Obviously, you need to make sure you have the capabilities to recharge the AA batteries. Once you can detect a fire, make sure everyone is trained on an escape plan and drill on it regularly. You can increase everyone's chances of surviving by stocking up and training with emergency escape supplies such as breathing masks, Technon Breath of Life fire mask, ready mask, etc. Flashlights, whistles, and fire escape ladders for multi-story buildings or just put up a zip line. Be honest, when was the last time you held a family fire drill? Preventing and escaping fires is a good start, but sometimes you'll also want to be able to put out small fires before they get out of control. Before getting into this, you need to understand that there are different types of fires depending on the fuel source and different ways of putting them out. Class A, fires in ordinary combustibles such as wood, paper, cloth, trash, and plastics. Class B, fires in flammable liquids such as gasoline, petroleum, oil, and paint. Also includes flammable gases such as propane and butane, but not grease or cooking oil. Class C, fires involving energized electrical equipment. Class D, fires in combustible metals such as potassium, sodium, aluminum, and magnesium. And Class K, fires in cooking oils and grease such as animals and vegetable fats. In a post-Tiatwaki world, the most common types of fire will most likely be Class A, followed by Class B and K, so that's what I'll focus on here. Most of us, hopefully, have at least one store-bought fire extinguisher at home. The inexpensive fire extinguishers you can buy at big box stores are okay. They're typically single-use and have a limited functional lifetime. The pressure inside f falls over time. This may be fine if you're 100% certain you'll only ever have to worry about one fire in the first few years post-Tiatwaki. However, if you're reading this, you're probably the type of person that prefers longer-term sustainable capabilities, so let's look at a few. Buckets of sand. Sand puts out fire by cutting off its supply of oxygen. Buy some buckets, paint them red, stencil fire on them, and place them around your house and property. 
Sand has been used to extinguish fires for thousands of years. It can be used on many types of fires. Fire blankets. Fire blankets can be used to smother small fires. Make sure you get fire rated blankets which are fireproof. Baking soda. Baking soda releases CO2 when it's heated, thereby smothering the fire of oxygen. It's best on small grease fires. You can store some airtight bags of, of it in strategic locations, and it has many other great uses. Monoammonium phosphate. This is actually the dry chemical that's inside many of the small ABC fire extinguishers you buy at the store. It works by coating the fuel and preventing it from burning. Keep some airtight containers of monoammonium phosphate in strategic locations. As an added benefit, you can also use it in your garden as a fertilizer. And then water. One of the most common methods of putting out fires. There are many ways to use it. Now, I wanted to go look at that uh, monoammonium phosphate. Uh, you can buy two pounds for $16.99 on Amazon. There's a link to it there on Survival Blog. I'm just curious. I've never seen that one before. And they also have a one pound for $9.99. All right, continuing on. Most of the fires you'll encounter will be Class A, paper, wood, etc. It's worth paying some extra attention to how you can implement and sustain at least a minimal water-based firefighting capability. If you're old enough, you probably remember those old manual pump fire extinguishers that used to be everywhere. Well, they're still available, but they're not cheap. Companies like Miller Peerless still makes them, but they cost several hundred dollars. If you're lucky, you can still find them for a decent price at yard sales or flea markets. A more modern alternative would be some of the, great, some of the gear from companies like Smith Indian Fedco, which is designed for smoke eaters fighting brush fires, and it's usually meant to be carried on your back. A more traditional option would be something like the Amorex 240, which is pressurized extinguishers that can be refilled with water and repressurized with air using an appropriate fitting and a decent bike tire floor pump, minimum of 100 PSI. If you're a part of a compound or a group or you would just like a larger scale capability, you have a couple of options. One is to have a large water tank stored above the ground and then rely on gravity to provide the water pressure. This could work, but you're going to be limited in both the water pressure as well as the amount of water available. If you're near a decent water supply like a pond, lake, river, etc., you can get a gas or diesel powered high pressure water pump, which will cost somewhere between $700 and $5,000. Don't forget to set up some long-term gas diesel storage and to run and test the pump regularly. It's an expensive investment isn't protecting your property and possessions from fire worth the cost of at least a high-end battle rifle? There's, there are a lot more options available for putting out fire, such as the Auto Fire Out Fireball. I have, I have a bunch of these around my basement, home, fire, sprinkler systems, etc. My goal here was to make, wasn't to make anyone an expert firefighter or to provide a comprehensive list of every option available, but to get you thinking of how you would handle fire safety issues in a post-Tiotwaki world. I'd highly recommend spending some time learning about fires and what you can and should and should not do. Do some research on the web. And there's a couple of uh, websites here that they give. Visit your local fire department. Many of them offer free training courses and other resources. So there's, there's a lot of links here on this, um, on this article that you'll want to check out. And uh, there's a good amount of uh, comments, 25 comments that you can go and uh, 
uh, read as well. So something to consider. Like I said, you know, we don't always, and like the article said, we don't always think about firefighting when we, uh, you know, when we're talking about preparedness. It's more about making fire, but uh, definitely something very, very interesting. You know, maybe some containers, um, something like uh, some old milk jugs. Uh, the big gallon milk jugs, you can cut off maybe uh, the top and fill it up with sand and you at least have a, a handle. I don't know if it would hold it or not, but uh, you know, you got the paint bells uh, or paint the uh, gallon, you know, containers that you could use, uh, something like that to, uh, to help put out fires. So, uh, you know, something that you need to think about and to consider. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and go on to the next article. Our next article comes to us from Survival Sullivan, uh, and uh, that article is "What Will the Government Do Before, During, and After SHTF?" So, really, this one's going to be focusing a lot on uh, what FEMA does and what FEMA doesn't do, and uh, it kind of breaks it down for you with a little bit of uh, you know, firsthand experience uh, from the author standpoint. So, let's go ahead and start with this one. <clears throat> There's only a 50-50 chance the government will know how a doomsday disaster for a mere 24 hours um, for a mere 24 hours before it strikes. How long it will take government agencies to fully inform the public about a SHTF scenario remains largely unknown. Sure, the 24/7 mainstream news media will drone on and on about a potentially disaster disastrous hurricane approaching, complete with journalists struggling to hold on to their microphone while reporting from the scene. But few natural or man-made disasters will come with a warning. Advancement in solar flare detection over the past 20 years have been almost zero. If a World War III nuclear strike happens, don't expect career politicians to waste time warning all of us. They will be too busy running to their safety of their own lavish underground bunkers. The 72-hour kit FEMA barely bothers to urge Americans to get on hand will prolong life for just a short time, leaving those who buried their hands in the sand and failed to prepare properly to panic and ultimately perish. FEMA's motto is, Serving communities when needed. Almost every single person, if not all, who has been impacted by a natural disaster over the past two decades will inform you the actual service provided by FEMA is tardy insufficient and unorganized. You don't honestly expect efficiency from anything coming out of Washington DC, do you? The Emergency Alert System, or EAS, is designed to allow the federal and state government to instantly reach both the press and the American people. Unfortunately, the system has been unfortunately the system has been upgraded from its fully functional low-tech version over the past years. Now, the Emergency Alert System is a high-tech program that is, is extremely vulnerable to cyber hacking. Tech-savvy terrorists could hack into the EAS and relay false information to the American people. At best, a fake emergency news bulletin could prompt a panic unnecessarily. At worst, cyber warfare could be used to intentionally send police officers, other first responders, and regular Americans directly into danger. Imagine for a moment how much worse the Boston Marathon or 9-11 terror attack would have been if an emergency alert system bulletin told frightened Americans and those tasked with protecting the community to rush to a specific location or area of a city to avoid danger, sending them straight into the path of a bomb and crashing airplanes. Not only could the EAS be manipulated to reroute traffic and nix proper signals before and during the initial phase of SHTF disaster, a recent report by a security firm pointed out 
critical vulnerabilities inherent in the high-tech system that could cause it not to function properly as well. According to the I.O. active firm, the emergency alert system, when it was still known as the emergency broadcasting system, sends messages using radio and television wire services. The upgraded version of the service allows the president to share a message instantly and directly with the American people. Not a single United States president has yet tried to use the, the direct link alert system function, so no one knows if it will really work or if the president's message could be intercepted and or altered. According to the ZDNet security technology report, it would not take even a seasoned cyber hacker to tap into the emergency response system. If the system's root server is infiltrated, a hacker would have the capability to alert, alter or stop the flow of emergency information issued by the government, leaving the American people in a bewildered and hyper-panicked state. The government's primary goal before, during, and after a disaster is to maintain order. Protecting our rights and freedoms will probably not come in as even a close second during an SHTF disaster. The very real possibility of martial law being, de being declared would restrict our movement. <clears throat> Freedom of speech and potentially the ability of being left defenseless if guns are confiscated during a disaster or after a disaster. A secure and resilient nation with the capabilities required across the whole community to prevent, protect against, mitigate, respond to, and recover from the threats and hazards that pose the greatest risk is how the FEMA website describes the proper and anticipated response from the, from the federal agency when disaster strikes. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is very much a political animal. Leaders at the agencies are not required to have any specialized training in disaster preparedness. Granting prime government posts to folks who helped win elections is a long tradition in Washington. Even after FEMA was melded into the newly created Department of Homeland Security in 2002, the Mammoth Federal, Emergency, sorry, the Mammoth Federal Agency has changed very little operationally speaking since the Cold War era. Presidential black eyes over responses, FEMA responses to hurricanes, floods, and wildfires have prompted a flurry of policy and funding changes, but little else which will help them help all of us during a doomsday disaster. In 2006, both Congress and the George W. Bush administration passed an extensive piece of legislation designed to not only fix, but to strengthen FEMA amid intense and vehement backlash over the agency's response or lack of response to Hurricane Katrina. As a result of the legislation, FEMA, which failed miserably to deliver aid and comfort during Hurricane Katrina, the majority of the Department of Homeland Security's agency's pre-preparedness functions were shifted to FEMA, essentially rewarding them for the recent poor delivery of services. The baffling move made the FEMA director as powerful as the Department of Homeland Security Deputy Secretary, reporting only directly to the President of the United States, who tends to be a very busy guy. We have not had a major disaster since Hurricane Katrina, so until another such incident occurs, we have absolutely no way of knowing if consolidating preparedness planning and responses services into a single agency will work efficiently. FEMA and DHS disaster preparedness plans focus on four specific response areas. Logistics, the transportation and movement of crucial materials and supplies to the disaster area. 
Community Relations, Outreach, and Awareness to Citizens Regarding Disaster Assistance Programs, Individual Assistance, Providing Aid to Disaster Victims, and Public Assistance, Review of and Removal of Disaster-Related Debris. During and after a mega long-term disaster, money will be nothing more than a useless piece of paper, so the disaster relief vouchers that are part of the Community Relations portion of the FEMA and DHS plan will, will be worthless and the shelves at grocery stores, pharmacies, and gas stations will all be empty long before FEMA arrives anyway. Both the individual assistance and public assistance prongs of the federal government disaster plan will almost certainly evaporate during an SHTF scenario as well. The transportation of critical resources and supplies will be hampered at the very least during a disaster and surely after a doomsday event as well. Now, if Americans are herded into FEMA camps, delivering goods will be a lot simpler if the trucks are not hijacked along the way. Leaving your land or home to go live in a FEMA camp voluntarily is not something any prepper I have ever known would be willing to ever consider. Do not expect either a rapid or effective response from FEMA. It is just not going to happen. One thing, one very important thing, the lengthy FEMA emergency response plan does not address at all is a backup response plan if their vehicles will not roll. Responders are unable or unwilling to leave their homes and participate in the plan or how the plan will continue after the initial resources run out during a nuclear disaster or power grid down situation. As I described in an earlier report for Survival Sullivan, I lived through a regional natural storm disaster and have had first-hand experience with FEMA disaster response. During a widespread power outage six years ago, we were experiencing a 105-degree heat wave. The power was out in portions of multiple states for at least a week. FEMA did not arrive until three days after the storm knocked out power to tens of thousands of homes. Officials at state and county emergency management agencies were told by their federal counterparts the agency was overwhelmed by the need and simply did not have enough personnel or supplies in the region to respond any quicker. The cities, of course, received help from FEMA in greater abundance than the rural areas when water and ice finally arrived. As noted above, FEMA is a political animal and more voters exist in cities than they do in, placed most, in places most preppers choose to live. When the SHTF... If FEMA eventually does show up, folks like us will be on the low end of the totem pole and no one, despite where they live, should expect to receive more than a day or two of water, ice, or emergency food packets at best. No gas stations were open, no grocery stores were open during the regional disaster my family lived through, and the water flowing from the tap was about 70 degrees. Citizens were warned to use water sparingly and not to bathe because there was only a three-day emergency reserve available until the power came back on. When FEMA did arrive, it became quickly evident the communication chain between federal, state, and local had failed miserably. Not surprisingly, the federal agency operated under a massive set of rules and protocols which were either not shared with state and local emergency management agencies and first responders or were buried deep in some thousand-page response plan that no one bothered to read or could fully understand. A riot nearly broke out in our uh, bucolic little county when citizens after citizens was turned away from the cases of unrefrigerated water and melting ice lines because they did not possess proper identification and proof of address getting free water required more of an ID process than casting a vote. 
Residents had about a 40-minute drive to any open store, all of which had nearly empty shelves, long lines, took only cash, and had placed limits on the purchase of essential food, water items, and supplies. It was not uncommon to wait in line for over an hour and walk away with nothing. Fuel at the few, few open gas stations was also rationed during the short-term regional disaster. The manner in which FEMA labels doomsday disasters offers only basic and incomplete emergency preparedness tips to address totally downplays the severity of impact such scenarios will have on all of our lives. The FEMA website doesn't offer EMP or solar flare disaster preparedness information. Nope, just vague tidbits about space weather preparedness before, during, and after such an event. The most important tip FEMA offers Americans to help guide them after an EMP is to throw out food which may have not been refrigerated at the government's recommended safe temperature. FEMA doesn't offer advice on how to deal with or how they will respond to a nuclear disaster either. Instead of using such scary language to offer sound preparedness tips, the federal agency labels the thin section about this type of doomsday disaster scenario as radiological dispersion device tips. How does FEMA warn us to prepare for a dirty bomb or other radiation emergency? The federal agency urged us to buy a roll or duct tape and scissors and to stockpile two weeks worth of food and other essentials. Yep, I'm sure that will do the trick and save the entire family. Want another gem of advice from FEMA for what to do after a nuclear or other disaster? The federal agency urges everyone to keep listening to the radio and television for alerts from the government telling you what to do next and what areas to avoid. Basically, if you are waiting on FEMA staffers to ride to your rescue, it will be the last thing you and your loved ones ever do. State emergency management agencies coordinate their efforts with both FEMA and local mun municipalities. Emergency Operation Plans, or EOP, mirror the overall FEMA plan, are both equally thick response binders and a whole host of protocols and response regulations. From my experience being married to a firefighter and working with the local EMA director and law enforcement agencies in various capabilities and capacities, disaster simulation scenarios training, at least in Ohio, has never occurred on a statewide level to truly test the functionality of the plan. Regional training is conducted several times a year with a detailed evaluation of the drill being sent to various state agencies, but sometimes the disaster scenario training is merely a day-long tabletop drill. To the best of my knowledge and research, state and regional disaster preparedness plans in most, if not all states, assume each agency will be able to respond with all of their vehicles, gear, and resources laid out in the plan, which we all know is not likely to happen in a real disaster, especially a power grid down or nuclear disaster. The goal of the Ohio Emergency Operation Plan is basically to respond in the most expedient and efficient manner possible. Once again, a government response plan goes vague on the details and neglects to mention a plan B if plan A is incapable of getting off the ground due to the nature of the disaster. MARCs, or multiple agency radio communication system handheld radios, have become commonplace in state disaster readiness plans. While the expense, expensive to buy and operate radios might be readily available at metropolitan police and fire departments, Local first responders in rural areas do not have the same access to the statewide communication radios. 
Typically, rural or poor communities have just one or perhaps two marks radios for use by a chief and at an emergency remote command center. If the doomsday disaster was not sparked by an EMP solar flare, the radios of first responders will still work, but only until the batteries run down about 8 to 10 hours during heavy use and cannot be recharged. The lack of communication between communities, the state, and FEMA will quickly prove to be a massive stumbling block during and after a disaster. Even if the radios are protected in a Faraday cage, damage to the cell towers necessary for them to function could render them useless. Should the cell towers survive the disaster, a gang of bad guys and gals could still disrupt communications for nefarious reasons by damaging the cell tower's essential components. Under the Assumptions section of Ohio's Emergency Response Plan, it states the plan is based off the assumption the statewide communication systems will be operational, local authorities will be able to relay and assist with the plan, and by working together, state and local jurisdictions will be able to repair and restore communications facilities. Those are some gigantic assumptions right there, folks. Communication is essential not only as the horrific incident is unfolding during and in the immediate aftermath, but for the weeks and months to come. Ham radio operators and old-fashioned CB radios can help relay messages between homes, community entities, and the state-federal government. But again, only if they were fried, if they only if they were fried during the onset of the SHTF event and can be recharged. I think that meant to say only if they weren't fried. During a long-term disaster, the ability to communicate allows the ability of sharing not just government alerts, but also warnings from fellow citizens about an illness spreading through the area, which will happen with far greater frequency after the SHTF, and roving bands of violent hordes that could be headed your way. Communication should be an essential part of your preparedness plan, so you can monitor government alerts if they should actually hit the air airwaves to learn about pending threats of all varieties and to help coordinate community or neighborhood self-defense efforts. Your local leaders and first responders will be the most effective and functional forms of government support during and after a disaster, while local leaders, police officers, firefighters, and other essential municipal workers will not have first-hand access to details about the disaster, they do possess substantial knowledge of their own community's available resources, can find every street and small village in the county without aid of GPS, and are invested in the survival of the community on a very personal level. They live there too. Although the federal and state emergency agency plans dictate a 24-7 staffing component, the people tasked with showing up for an, a shift are not going to be worried about getting fired when the SHTF, but your local cop will still want to help keep the streets in the town where his children live as safe as possible. A quality county or city emergency response plan will follow typical government protocols as required, but also enlist community groups and local volunteers. It is this human component that the state and federal plans, even with all their pre-disaster resources at their disposal, are lacking and will help keep you and your loved ones alive during the apocalypse. Community emergency response teams may have entered into formal agreements with local or even state governmental entities and undergone training specific to their academic and professional background. Even those groups or citizens who have not signed up to officially be part 
of a local emergency preparedness plan will still show up in droves to volunteer their services in their neighborhoods and communities when it counts the most. Impromptu gatherings at every VFW and American Legion post across the United States will surely occur after disaster strikes. Veterans and retired police officers will play an integral role in protecting their town from outside threats, preventing looting and general chaos, and restoring order long-term when panic takes hold as the medicine and food supply dwindles. Medical professionals currently employed, retired, or in college will also step up and offer to share their skills with those in need. Firefighters, past, present, and trainees will not need to be paid to show up to help prevent the destruction of their community during a disaster. Unfortunately, few, if any, local preparedness plan prep for fire response during a power grid down or long-term disaster. Attending local city village council meetings and county board of commissioners meetings to address this and other logical emergency response concerns to help find solutions before they are needed should be a priority for all preppers. Even if you live on a few hundred acres with a substantial mutual assistance group, it could eventually be almost impossible to defend the entire area, protect the livestock from theft, and put out fires all by yourself. We are all in this together. The better educated, prepared, and aware our neighbors, the better all of our chances for survival. The creation and nourishment of a solid community response plan in the absence of or in addition to an official municipal plan could mean the difference between life and death when the SHTF. Preppers attempting to create a functional community response plan should begin focusing on communications during the very first meetings of the group. The volunteers should purchase compatible radios, extra batteries and chargers, be taught how to both use them properly and store them properly, testing out signal strength from the entire service area during all four seasons of the year and during inclement weather, leave nothing to chance. When it comes right down to it, whether or not you survive during and after a disaster is entirely up to you. No, you can't alter the path of a bullet with your mind or create food out of thin air, but you are armed with knowledge about what to expect from our government during and after a disaster and have the ability to enhance your survival skills and stockpiles of preps before a Tiatwaki happens. When you decide to do, what you decide to do now could one day make all the difference. Learn more, train more, speak more to local groups about the local and or community response plan and then go forth and teach others so they are an asset and not part of the problem after the SHTF. All right, so uh, good article there. There's nine comments. There's a lot of links all throughout the the uh, the article, and uh, something to really you know consider because you are going to be on your own. FEMA, you cannot count on FEMA. Uh, but most of you listening to this, unless you're really new to preparedness and you just found the uh, the podcast, uh, you know that you can't count on FEMA, and uh, you're you're going to be on your own uh, when you know a big disaster happens. Uh, you know, towards the end talks about a little bit about the local aspect of it. I think, you know, that that can happen in the smaller towns and, and, and villages and cities and things like that. Um, you know, again, I live in Houston. Uh, and, and I've always said, if you've listened, you know, from the beginning, and I've said this in various times, 
if something big, if the big one was to happen, right, EMP, solar flare, whatever, what I would be doing is uh, immediately going through my neighborhood and trying to gather everyone for a big communication uh, meeting, like they mentioned here, and uh, letting them know what's happened, what's going on, and how we need to start operating, and how we need to start reacting. Uh, because, uh, you know, just hunkering down in your house by yourself, uh, and everybody becomes an easy target. But when everybody becomes vigilant and uh, you are protecting your homes and uh, maybe you have uh, certain ways that people come in and out of the neighborhood, uh, you know, that, that begins to, uh, and then you're helping each other out. You know, people who, uh, you know, who, whatever, the elderly and, and going from there. Um, I believe that all that's going to be important. It's going to be important to come together as a community. So I like the way that this article put it and, and went there, started from uh, you know the national down to the state level and then eventually down to the community level. And that's where people uh, care and that human uh, element. I think that was the biggest point of this article where it said the human element, that makes the whole difference right there. Uh, you know, people that live in the community are going to be interested in the community. So that's that Survival Sullivan. Go check that one out. Uh, again, it was titled, What Will the Government Do Before, During, and After SHTF? Uh, because this is Friday or the F Friday podcast, I usually try to pull an article from the archives. And um, I don't know why I started thinking about this article um, that I wrote a while back. Uh, so this is coming from edthatmatters.com. It's my personal website. And uh, the title is, How Do Different Generations View Preparedness? And uh, so I, I've done some studying on preparedness, I'm sorry, on generational uh, you know, generations and, and different things, and, you know, like in education and in generations as far as uh, the religious aspect of it, uh, spiritual aspect. Uh, many of you know that I am a pastor as well, and so that was always interesting to me. And so, yeah, I kind of put some things together uh, as far as um, generations and how they might look at preparedness. So... Let's go ahead and start reading this one. As school is starting and I'm sitting, I'm sorry, let, let me say this as well. This was uh, almost written four years ago, so August 11th, 2013. So just about four years old. As school is starting and I'm sitting in beginning of year meetings, I tend to start thinking about the stuff I'm hearing in two realms. There is the educational realm where what I'm learning, listening to, being reminded of pertains to my day job. Then there is the preparedness realm where I tend to think about how the stuff I'm learning applies to my current view of the world, how fragile and just jacked up we all are. Yeah, I went there. One of the things that comes up recently was a discussion on generations and how our students are wired differently than say we are. I put we are in quotes because we are can consist of a few different generations too. This is important because every generation has some general, notice I say general, ideas, philosophies, attitudes, and behaviors that characterize them. This can be important to preparedness because it helps us to know where others are coming from and why they might have the ideas or attitudes they have. One article that I read stated that there are six generations currently living today. The GI generation born between 1901 and 1926 the mature silence, born between 1927 and 1945, the baby boomers, born between 1946-1964, Generation X, born between 1965, <clears throat> 1965 and 1980, 
and Generation Y or Millennium born between millennials born between 1981 and 2000 and Generation Z or the Boomlets born after 2001. Like I said, every generation has certain characteristics that helped mold their attitudes and beliefs on life. For example, here's a graphic from uh, ArthurMaxwell.com. Uh, don't visit the site. Malware Bytes blocked a Trojan there. <laughs> so uh, back in the day when I did visit it and when I did create this, uh, Malware Bytes said, hey, you know, be careful here. But there is a, uh, a graphic that, uh, that I was able to download. And uh, so it, it brings up like uh, the veterans, the baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, their core values. Um, so let me give you some of the core values here. So for uh, the veterans between... Uh, 1922 and 1945 so uh, that would be like the mature silence um, their core values were respect for authority uh, conformers and discipline the baby boomers their core values were optimism and involvement generation X is skepticism fun and informality and generation Y and again that's 1981 to 2000 were realism confidence extreme fun social um, and then so you have um, different ways there. So um, other, other um, personal lifestyle characteristics. I'm not going to read them all, but it does talk about family. So how do these different generations look at family? How do they look at education? How do they, uh, they uh, look at communication or media? You know, what is, you know, what is the way that they you know, take in information? And then how do they deal with money? All right. So in an article by Value Options, Bob Mitchell provides some insight into understanding and managing different generations. For the sake of this post, I will just list the Boomers, Gen X, and Gen Y. Check out the rest of the article. Baby Boomers, born between 1946 and 1964, are drawn to long hours at the office, including evenings and weekends, building their careers over the long term and loyalty to their employer, viewing themselves and their career as one and the same, Commitment to quality and doing a good job, hanging tough through difficult work situations and policies, finding solutions to problems, and being in charge and respecting authority. Members of Gen X, born between 1964 and 1980, tend to prefer high quality end results over quantity, set and meet goals and are very productive, multitask, balance work and life like flexible working hours, job sharing, see themselves as free agents and marketable commodities, are comfortable with authority but not impressed with titles, be technically competent, or value ethnic diversity, and they love independence. Members of the Gen Y, or born between 1981 and 1994, tend to prefer effecting change and making an impact, expressing themselves rather than defining themselves through work, multitasking all the time, active involvement, flexibility in work hours and appearance, a relaxed work environment, teamwork, on-the-job training, getting everything immediately, and a balance of work and life. Do you think that this information might, might be relevant if you have a community or a survival group? What are you going to do when you are the leader, a baby boomer, give instructions to a Gen Yer, and they say they need a little bit more time off, and they don't really like the hours you are making them work to provide security? <clears throat> Of course, things might take on a whole different feel when it's Tiawaki, but then again, the Gen Yers in this group might not think so. Okay, but 
Let's not jump into the SHTF scenario. Let's just look at the overwhelming desire that most of us usually feel when we start preparing. How would it look if you approached various generations with the idea of preparedness? All right, so the boomers, a positive approach to preparedness. Um, and so basically what I have here is the different generations. I, I have maybe if they have a positive approach or a negative approach to, uh, to preparedness. So uh, these are kind of like uh, maybe something a boomer would say. So a positive approach to preparedness. I don't want to believe that things will get bad, but I see some, things, some signs and I think it is a good idea to be prepared just in case. So a boomer who has a negative approach to preparedness might say, I trust the government. With a lot of hard work, we can get through the, this economic crisis. Generation Xers, uh, what they might say in a positive approach would be, I have some friends who are preparing. I think it might be a good idea to prep too. The negative approach to preparedness as far as the Gen Xers are concerned are, go prepare if you want to, just leave me out of it, I'll take care of myself. Uh, Gen Y, um, they look at uh, the way that they might look at it, a positive approach would be, the boomers and Gen Xers ruined our economy, now I need to prep as a precaution. Uh, the negative approach to preparedness from a Gen Yer might be, the world is not going to fall apart on us, you're crazy. Okay, will they actually say those things? Probably not, but I've tried to pull some of the characteristics from each group to come up with my statements. Having this information could also help someone teach skills to someone in a certain generation. If you know what makes them tick, you can approach the teaching of skills in a relevant way. Lastly, take a moment to ask yourself, does your generation help to drive the way you look at preparedness, self-reliance, self-sufficiency? You might find that you are a rare bird or you might see some of your generation's characteristics in yourself. For more reading, multi-generational characteristics there's a so I have a couple I have a bunch of links here and uh, I also have this infographic at the very end that kind of just breaks down uh, a bunch of other things like uh, video viewing habits internet usage connected devices um, just a bunch of information that might be uh, interesting to you and like I said a lot of other uh, links that you can go to I do not link to the one that had a Trojan Although four years out, either that site has been taken down or probably, hopefully, has fixed that issue with, uh, with their Trojan because Google would have flagged it a long time ago. But, uh, you know, when I've done my own studies and preparedness, at least uh, the people that are coming to, you know, the surveys that I have done and then uh, the informal surveys that I have done, I think I've done two, and then uh, looking at demographics from um, just Internet internet research sites that you know wind up tagging the tagging prepper website um, people in preparedness are older you know so uh, I'm in my 40s there's usually people are, are the majority are going to be somewhere between my age and about 65 years old right that, that's the majority um, there is uh, some that are younger like 40s to 30s there's some that are there um, and then there's very few that are younger than that, you know, 30s to 20s. 
There's some, but they're very few. Usually those that are there, um, they've come from homes that, uh, you know, were preparedness-minded. And so uh, they, they get it from there. But uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, that how uh, different generations view different things. Um, they have different ideas and, and different characteristics and the way they view the world. And so, um, you know, you might have a, a millennial who might not have a problem looking at things globally where someone in the you know the boomer generation or even the x generation generation x might say you know what uh globalism is is fine but you know we want to take care of our nation you know we want to be maybe a little bit more patriotic and and or nationalistic i should say so uh you know that's possibility there but anyway uh interesting articles i think it's always fascinating to look at stuff like that so a couple of links there <clears throat> all right so um Hey, and I apologize for my voice today. It keeps going on me. It's been a, well, it's, I'm going to let you know when I'm recording this, it's 1.14 in the morning. I had a really long week this week. We had a long conference that the department that I was on or that I'm in was putting together. And so long, long days at the, you know, at the conference and then coming home. And today I was just exhausted so I actually, uh, I, I was just so exhausted I had to sleep for a little bit, little bit. so took a rest and uh, about two hours and then uh, woke up, ate some dinner and then uh, started getting ready for the podcast, uh, but it's late and I think that's one reason why my voice is so, it keeps cracking on me, I had to keep pausing um, and, and drinking water. So that's another week of uh, podcast in the books. Uh, don't forget to visit all the websites that allow me to read their articles. You know, uh, I, I can't do it. I can't do this podcast without those articles. I can't run Prepper website without uh, other websites that are writing great articles. So, uh, you know, please visit those those websites. And if you do leave a comment or if you do contact that webmaster, hey, let them know that hey, I, I'm, I'm coming to you from the Prepper website podcast, right? Uh, just let them know that they're they're uh, they're hitting you're you're hitting them from them because they don't really see uh, someone who reads um, or so or uh, someone who has a website that allows me to read their articles. They're not really knowing that uh, that you're coming from. Uh, the Prepper Website Podcast, unless you go to the Prepper Website Podcast website and then go to their website. But, uh, you know, I have been linking to all the uh, to all the articles and all the, you know, all the other links in the show notes. And so if you go directly from there, they don't know. They'll just see an increase in traffic. They won't see uh, necessarily uh, where it's coming from. So let them know that you've uh, you've come from Prepper Website and that you appreciate that uh, that I can read their articles uh, and uh, you know that you can uh, you know get their content that way. So uh, I, I link to uh, to all of the websites, uh, you know, all the articles that I read, you know, every time in in the uh, the show notes and description of the of the show. Uh, so you know, if you get a chance, come on over to the website, the Prepper Website Podcast dot com and uh, you know make sure that you uh, share us out through through social media or email or word of mouth you know anything that you can do out there to to help get the word out we really appreciate it I know that we're on episode 115 but we're still still kind of new we just started in February uh, you know so but being that it's a daily we're racking up the episodes but we still want to get the word out there and again don't forget 
If you're looking for more preparedness material this weekend, uh, the Prepper Website podcast isn't enough for you. You can always stop by PrepperWebsite.com. There's a ton of articles there that I never get to on the podcast. And then we have all the other pages, you know, if you're into firearms, alternative uh, news, if you're into conspiracies, uh, frugal living, DIY, all of that is there. I also encourage you to join our free Facebook page and email list. You can get to both of them on the menu bar of the website. And don't forget that when you register for the email list, you automatically get enrolled in the free e-course, Live a More Self-Reliant Life. So with that, I wish you a great weekend and I hope you can get out and enjoy some dirt time or whatever that means for you. And as always, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government, grid, or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.